guys, welcome back to Down the Line. It's Sagar and Sean, and today we're joined by Dr. Badachape, a Baylor researcher and bioengineer. Dr. Badachape, it's great to have you with us. It's great to meet both of you. So to get things started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you interested in medical research? Absolutely. So uh, I'm a native Texan. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas and Sugarland, just outside. Went to Clements High School and I attended Rice University like uh, both of the hosts on this podcast. I graduated in 2013 and uh, with my degree in bioengineering. And after I pursued a PhD at Washington University in St. Louis, also focused on bioengineering, but there I focused more on medical imaging. That's actually kind of the big theme for a lot of the work that I did, both academically and research-wise, is I looked at, I was really interested in medical imaging, and I really wanted to learn more about the development and engineering and science of imaging. And that's kind of what set me down my medical research path. Hmm. Um, could you tell us briefly what your day-to-day life looks like? Sure. So as a researcher at Baylor, we primarily do work with both in vitro uh, cells, culture, tissue work, and also in vivo with mice and small animals, particularly mice and rats. The uh, primary thing that I do in the morning is I usually take care of uh, whatever animal colonies that we have, uh, mostly for experiments that we might have scheduled for the day. And then after that, it's mostly just doing review of different research, uh, literature articles, um, anything that's possibly new or has come up or something that might be interesting to uh, an ongoing research project. From there, I would say in late mornings, early afternoons, it's typically conducting research. We do a lot of work with magnetic resonance imaging and uh, computed tomography. And often I spend my afternoons processing data and or just writing. Uh, a big part of medical research is, of course, distributing and disseminating your findings to the community. So a lot of work that we do is on writing publications or other communications to other people in our field or to the general public. Awesome. Um, a lot of your research uh, focuses on magnetic resonance elastography, um, which is important for identifying body tissues that are stiffening. Um, so what are some current applications for this testing and future applications as well? Yeah, so magnetic resonance elastography was the uh, uh, first technology that I used when I was uh, doing my PhD at Washington University. It's essentially a uh, type of phase contrast imaging So the idea there is that it captures um, oscillations or harmonic motion of some sort of tissue. It's primarily used clinically for looking at the liver, for looking at cirrhosis or very stiff regions of the liver. Um, I primarily used it for looking at brain imaging, looking at brain tissue and um, uh, scalp tissue. And the reason for that is we are interested in looking at material properties of brain tissue and how that might be able to inform better models of traumatic brain injury or be able to better understand brain tissue in general. There is a lot of work on trying to expand um, magnetic resonance elastography into the brain. And there has been a lot of, there's a lot of really strong work that's happening out of University of Delaware and other universities as well. But I haven't seen very uh, very much that's uh, really focused on pure clinical applications recently. Awesome. Um, So you kind of talked about how MREs um, can be seen as, or used for liver um, disease detection and It can also be seen as an alternative to liver biopsies and provide an accurate assessment to liver fibrosis. Um, A question that I had was a cancer biopsy is often like the only way to know for sure if you have cancer. Do you see like an alternative being developed for cancer biopsies? I think that that is possible. One thing that's really important to note, however, is that um, with the... uh 
with the ability to look at uh, mechanical and material properties with imaging, there can be a lot of error. There can be a lot of changes in the material properties that you get when you assess it non-invasively through imaging. So we're still trying to, I guess you can say, narrow down that range of expected values, because especially when you're talking about something like cancer, where you can have a very large mechanical response, a very large spectrum of response for different tissue types. It's really difficult to still compare that with the gold standard of biopsy, where you can actually physically inspect or look at biomarkers or other types of characterization of those tissue. Uh, we have to remember that with something like MRE, that's a non-invasive characterization, you always have to think about what is the best case scenario for confirming the diagnosis potential for something like that. I think that there is potentially space in the future for that, but I think that it would need to be paired with some other imaging technology or some other approach to be sure. Awesome. Um, in addition to MRE, you also uh, research a lot with nanoparticle-based contrast agents. Could you talk a little bit about how that's um, different or similar to nuclear imaging and what exactly your work is with that? Yeah, that's actually a good segue for what I was really thinking about. That's a big reason that I've really got into that recently. So nanoparticle contrast agents essentially describe very, very small molecules that we typically use for diagnostic or theranostic, meaning both uh, therapeutic and diagnostic uh, approaches for certain types of disorders. So in nuclear medicine, one thing to keep in mind is that's also often a type of nanoparticles. In fact, they're probably one of the first nanoparticles that comes to mind. Nuclear imaging typically uses things like radio tracers that are injected, and then they're used to look for functional changes in things like blood disorders, diseases of the heart, thyroid, gallbladder, and also could be used for a lot of cancer applications. But they're primarily used for functional applications. When we talk about nanoparticle agents, like the ones that I look at for magnetic resonance imaging or computed tomography, those both can be functional, meaning they could be targeted towards a certain organ, tissue, or disorder. But often they're also used for anatomical or structural imaging which means they can be used to enhance things like blood vessel architecture, uh, looking at just uh, system, um, systemic circulation in general for a region of the body. It's really really quite exciting stuff, actually. Uh, the, uh, the really cool thing about these agents that I work with is that they're very long circulating. They last for a very long time, whereas in magnetic resonance imaging of traditional contrast agents like gadolinium, you have a relatively short, uh, or iodine in, comp in computer tomography, you have a relatively mm -hmm. short window that you can actually get data acquired in patients. The benefit of the materials that we use is that they're very long circulating. However, that can also be a challenge. Um, some, of you, some of our listeners might be aware of safety concerns that have recently come about due to use of gadolinium or other types of radio tracers or other types of nanoparticle imaging. A big part about this field is that there's a lot of power behind nanoparticle uh, imaging agents. There's a lot of things you can do with them, but we always have to be mindful of the safety, pharmacokinetics, toxicology, and the eventual clearance mechanism for these particles before they see any clinical use, which is why when we think about most nanoparticles that have been approved, they've been studied for often decades, like a lot of radio tracers or uh, positron emission tomography or SPECT, um, single photon emission uh, computed tomography. These are agents that have been studied for a very long time and we're very familiar with, their con with the uh, clearance mechanisms. But as in the case in gadolinium, even with a very long lead time in understanding what these agents can do, we learn a lot more every single year about potential side effects or complications. So a big thing that we have to keep in mind for nanoparticles is when we administer, what is the least amount of harm that's, that's occurring as a result of this administration? And what is the actual utility or benefit from administering them? 
So to kind of tie it back with the earlier question that you asked in this podcast when, you know, you mentioned uh, MRE for looking at cancer, that's a good example of how, yes, the technology has the potential for being able to give you a diagnostic of utility or being able to understand more about an underlying disorder. But you have to weigh it against the gold standard, i.e. your sensitivity and ability to detect, and what are the potential downsides? What's the chance for a false negative or a false positive? Or in the case of a contrast agent, what's the potential for some sort of adverse reaction? Mm, interesting. Um, so many like expect artificial intelligence to transform medical imaging, um, where an AI program can improve analysis or just lead to better treatment. Do you think like in the future automation will put the jobs of physicians like such as radiologists at risk? So that's a very long and very kind of complicated question, I would say. You know, it's it's something that uh is discussed pretty frequently at uh radiology conferences, RSNA and others, and it's a very important conversation to have because Almost every field has seen technology and innovation come through and render certain practices obsolete. A big issue, though, with radiology, though, is radiologists are still the backbone for almost every single diagnostic approach that we have in a clinical setting. Almost every patient will undergo some kind of medical imaging for a clinician to better understand what's going on and be able to better understand what, more importantly, what treatment regimen should be performed. For radiologists, they have to essentially look at a very complicated data set. In addition to looking at the actual image that they have, which, right, artificial intelligence and machine learning could potentially provide insight and standardized ways of processing, they also have to think about the patient itself, which can be very difficult for these more sophisticated AI and ML approaches to do. I think that it's we're very, very far away from the machines coming from a radiologist job, but I do think that more hospitals will start thinking about ways to change workflows for looking at and processing medical imaging data. And that's going to have an impact on what radiology in the future looks like. I think what's more likely is that radiologists, as of right now, the ones that typically look at screens and then pass on uh, their impressions to other clinicians. I think that that field is going to change and those radiologists are gonna take a more active hand on the treatment side in terms of interventional radiology, or they're gonna become more like me. They're gonna become more like scientists and they're gonna start using these algorithms themselves and they're going to improve their ability to process lots of different data sets, look at a large number of different patients and potentially also inform treatment more using these tools. So I think instead of rendering them obsolete, I think it's going to be a partner for radiologists. And I think that the best radiologists, the ones that really uh, advance the field are going to be the ones that adopt this technology and harness it as opposed to being afraid of it. Mm -hmm. your, your research seems to really focus on how to improve and, you know, better use medical imaging technology itself, you know, as opposed to just the greater involvement of machine learning and automation altogether. Um, do you feel that enough scientists are focused on the tech itself? Well, I think that right now there's a very, very big focus on artificial intelligence and machine learning. I think it's they're very attractive. It's a very attractive field of research. Um, and the reason for that is because there are a lot of people that can bring a lot of different disciplines to bear on what is, at the end of the day, a computational problem. When you look at a medical image, it is a 2D data set of pixels, right? You're looking at different intensities, and it's very appealing for people that have a computer science or engineering background to try to think about ways of processing that data and finding ways to innovate and you know, find ways that you could do the diagnosis that's often done qualitatively. That's one of the first instincts that any engineer will have looking at such a data set. As for what I do, however, 
I'm a little bit less interested in that uh, that approach because I think that there are a lot of people that are far more educated than I am on the artificial intelligence and machine learning spectrum, but there are very few people that think about hardware and they think about the actual imaging techniques, use of contrast agents, use of different imaging equipment, or trying to manipulate the actual physical underpinning of how that image is acquired, like in the case of magnetic res resonance elastography. MRE is a really exciting field because you're essentially manipulating the way that you acquire that image data and you are getting a whole new set of information out of that that you wouldn't normally get from just a normal just scan uh, 2D or 3D image acquisition of the host tissue. So those are things that I'm really interested in. I think that I'm more interested in those than artificial intelligence and machine learning, primarily because those uh, ways of, of interpreting and computationally acquiring data really require very high fidelity data to begin with. And that's the most important thing. AI and machine learning uh, can give you a lot of leeway in you know, maybe reducing time of acquisition or improving diagnosis of uh, relatively poor images. But at the end of the day, you still need some sort of imaging. Uh, you still need some uh, threshold of image quality for these algorithms to do their best work. Otherwise, they're going to have a lot of issues deciphering and uh, being able to make decisions for clinicians. So you, you said in the past that the next generation of like healthcare-oriented scientists, engineers, and business people will likely focus on the emergence of telemedicine and other advancements in, in medicine. Um, besides telemedicine, what other technologies do you think will shape the next 100 years, and how should future physicians um, plan to adapt? 100 years is a really long time. I'm All right, let's say, sure 20. let's say 20. <laughs> um, but uh, I would say that, um, you know, we talked about artificial intelligence and machine learning. In addition to just those being unleashed on images themselves, they're also going to be used on patient data, uh, looking at uh, patient history, looking at things that the patient themselves gives, like with, um, uh, say, uh, smartwatches or Fitbits. Uh, Personal medicine, I think, is going to be one of the biggest advancements in the next few years as all of us start to have a larger digital footprint as we try to keep track of things like blood pressure, heart rate, uh, sugar, cholesterol, etc. These are all things that are going to be part of this digital signature that's going to be attached to every single individual patient. And that's kind of why I think a lot about telemedicine. A lot of people in my field, in fact, several graduate students that I, uh, that I worked with when I was doing my PhD, have become really interested in telemedicine especially during COVID, as we think about trying to expand access of healthcare to people that may not physically be able to be present due to things like an ongoing pandemic or their own uh, physical limitations, but also because uh, medical care is extraordinarily expensive and very difficult to, to get for, I would say, actually the bulk of our population in terms of regular preventative medica uh, medication and uh, checkups. Most of the time, people just show up because something's already going wrong. And that's creating enormous costs on our on our medical system at almost every level. And that's what's causing this explosion in need for physician's assistants, nurses, nurse practitioners, techs, et cetera, to kind of handle just all of these different um, emerging crises as they, as they come up in our society. And I think that if we embrace technology, telemedicine, and we become better at trying to think about preventative health and being able to actually think about issues before they come about, that would be a major boon to our system as a whole. And you don't necessarily need physicians to do all of that. 
And that's a really important thing to think about for, you know, listeners of this podcast that are thinking about careers outside of um, uh, uh, being a physician is you need people that are very well versed in computer science, people that think about the business uh, infrastructure that would be necessary to use personal data in a very safe and effective way, you know, also making sure that you're maintaining privacy controls for your average user, but also using that data in a way that could uh, help physicians and help individual patients. I think that um, when, uh, we, when we think about what engineers and biomedical engineering, for instance, think about, uh, there's been a very large focus on chemical engineering and electrical engineering over the last, you know, say 10 years in my field, especially, but I think that the future is going to be very heavily weighted towards computer science and engineering. You kind of talked about how preventative care um, is very important and how currently patients go into the, to the hospital with a current problem and then demand care, which is creating quite the burden on our healthcare system. How can someone like you as a biomedical engineer um, focus on more of a preventative care mindset? Is there like research that you could promote? Um, This is more of a public health oriented question. So I don't know if it's really up your alley, but is there anything you could do? Well, like I said, imaging is the uh, one of the most important parts of uh, patient care. Almost every patient is going to have some sort of imaging performed or determine what's going on. What I would say is that uh, when we think about the ability for imaging to interact with patients, it's also, a quick aside, another thing to note is that imaging is also one of the more costly elements of, of uh, personal care as well for most patients. So it's, it's a little interesting to think about that. And I do think about this quite a bit for my research and that it's a very indispensable technology, but it's also underpinning some of the largest increases in uh, care and the cost of care for the average patient. What we need to do as engineers in the imaging space is think about ways that we can use this technology to actually make things cheaper. Things like point of care diagnostic, things about uh, maybe replacing uh, very expensive technology like MRI and CT with uh, lower cost methodologies or lower cost modalities, ultrasound, uh, or thinking about when are times that blood work, for instance, or other diagnostic methods could be used in term instead of very expensive imaging methods for trying to help out patients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going off that, we're, we're talking about how telemedicine gives people better access to clinicians. And you mentioned the, but there's a big cost issue in terms of diagnostic imaging, right? MRIs, yes. PET scans, CTs. And I was, I was thinking, do you, do you see a future where, um, you know, imaging, you mentioned cheaper, but what about smaller or more portable? So, Patients could maybe have it at their homes and use it as part of their telemedicine visit, but that might not be feasible. But could there be like a a facility, right, where it's, um, like you said, cheaper, portable and, and more efficient? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are a lot of companies that are thinking about portable ultrasound, for instance, things that you could just interface with your cell phone, as an example. I think that's really exciting Mm -hmm. technology. Uh, You also have uh, different vendors and different um, scientists looking at portable MRI, very small uh, scale, small field devices that can be enclosed to look at um, things like um, uh, just uh, small extremities or the head, lots of different ways you can think about portable uh, imaging uh, 
utilities. And I think that that's a really cool approach. An issue though with those is again, like we talked about the very beginning of this podcast is again, the sensitivity and the effectiveness of it relative to the fear of false negative or false positive diagnosis. So that's why a lot of these technologies I think are still in such an exploratory phase because at the end of the day, when you think about the, the allure of these technologies, it's immense. But if you make a mistake, consequences are catastrophic. Hmm. Um, so going back to your research, one of your studies um, discusses the use of a novel nanoparticle formulation that allowed for the early detection of Alzheimer's. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that and if, if you could see this technology being used for early detection of other diseases? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The uh, So this is a class of nanoparticles that we have uh, targeted towards uh, specific um, biomarkers of disease. In this case, uh, looking at uh, Alzheimer's disease, this is targeted towards amyloid. So this agent was tested in uh, small animals. um, And also we've uh, done quite a bit of in vitro work as well with it to make sure that it actually does target the uh, biomarkers interest, which is amyloid in this case. And in addition to that, we've also done pharmacokinetic and tissue biodistribution studies to be able to better understand the safety profile and clearance mechanism for this. So this is a very exciting platform that we've been using. Uh, it is um, able to have very high sensitivity for these amyloid-bearing mouse models of disease. And we are very excited to eventually move into clinical trials with these. But as anyone who's thought about uh, nanoparticle uh, imaging agents and uh, their translation to clinic knows that's a very, very long process. So we've shown very strong data in our preclinical models. We're very excited about the data that we've shown. And we're also excited that uh, we've been able to show improvements in the original formulation, including the ability to, ha- to give this to a clinical, a, a corporate vendor and actually have them make the product itself and then test it in animals and show similar results. This is very important because it shows reproducibility of the original formulation. Additionally, we've demonstrated that uh, we can fine tune the amount of this drug that we're, in, uh, implement, that we're administering and still be able to show relatively high levels of sensitivity, which was the main purpose of uh, the study that uh, you just mentioned in uh, scientific reports. So going off that, uh, how does that technology that you're working on compare to amyloid PET imaging? So a big reason that we do that is because uh, PET imaging that essentially uses radio tracers for looking at similar biomarkers is extraordinarily mm-hmm. expensive. You know, there's mm-hmm. a very small user base of PET imaging and PET machines that are available to, you know, most of the country. Whereas an MRI agent, which is what this is is very useful because it can be used in a much larger user base. There's a lot more MRI machines that are installed around the country compared to PET machines. So this does improve the accessibility angle of this, and that's very cool as well. So it's a good example of, again, we talked about cost in medicine. We talked about the ability to think about both the utility of an agent, but also think about what this does for the patient, especially in terms of access. And this is immense for that because it could be potentially deployed for a lot more patients than a PET agent, which is often used as the in vivo gold standard currently for being able to assess amyloid amyloid, uh, burden. And this is important because amyloid is one of the two most important biomarkers for detecting Alzheimer's disease. Typically, we see amyloid at a relatively later stage, but stay tuned, actually, from other research in our lab where we try to look at precursor molecules. The excitement from this is, and this is the hope from our lab, we can develop a variant of this contrast agent that can be used to find 
early precursor molecules for both amyloid and tau pathology. And we could use that in both mm, an MRI setting or maybe um, potentially maybe other settings, other settings. Mm -hmm. to be able to, to um, um, uh, capture uh, uh, early diagnosis potential for patients. Yeah. Um, so do you have any advice to, I don't know, let's say you could give advice to yourself as a Rice student. Um, is there, for students interested in a career in healthcare, um, do you think being a biomedical engineer, um, like what's your advice to those wanting to be biomedical engineers and the impact that they can make on the healthcare system? Well, so my my viewpoint is primarily uh, primarily research focused. Mm -hmm. So, you okay. know, I, I went to Rice University and um, I worked at quite a few different labs, and that was very valuable for me because it uh, inspired my love for imaging, and it also helps me make connections that were going to be really important for me to pursue my PhD and uh, find inroads for my future career. That was very useful for me. But in general, research is very valuable for undergraduate students because you develop a lot of very powerful skills. You learn how to work with animals. You learn how to work with cell culture, tissue. Um, you learn how to process data. These are all very important tools for undergraduates to learn, and they can be used in more than just research. I think the primary advice that I would give engineers right now, especially at a place like Rice, is to not only try to find research applications, you know, research labs that are willing to take on, take you on, teach you, and give you opportunities to publish or go to conferences and present your work and have your own original projects that you could work on, but also to think down the line, uh, as the <laughs> podcast probably thinks about, about what you'd like to do with that skill set. You know, if you want to be a clinician. Research is still very important. Uh, almost every clinician is going to do some sort of fellowship or some sort of research uh, post-medical school or maybe even during medical school. If you are interested in working as a consultant, if you're interested in working in uh, research and development, if you're interested in building anything, because the field of bioengineering is so new, Research is very valuable because you're able to get exposed to a lot of different ideas, technologies, and methods that could be useful for almost all of these different emerging technologies that we've talked about during this podcast, whether it be new contrast agents, new ways of using imaging technology, uh, thinking about artificial intelligence and machine learning, or thinking about you know the next big thing in telemedicine or being able to use uh, a patient's uh, physical or uh, medical data to better inform treatment for them. Awesome. Um, so kind of taking it back to the like macro lens, um, with the growing adoption of technological advancements in medicine, like we kind of touched on these two main issues that I wanted to talk about, um, like the trust and acceptance of the technologies as well as like legal issues. Um, and we've kind of seen this right to a degree with the MRNA COVID vaccines. Um, my question is, do you think it's the scientist's job to gain patients trust or is it the role of the healthcare providers? I 100% believe it is on the job of scientists to be better. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if you, you look at a lot of uh, podcasts in the space, you know, there's a lot of controversy around, um, you know, podcasts that will have very prominent scientists on who um, will express skepticism about vaccines, will express skepticism about the research behind it, its efficacy, its safety even. And a reason that I think there's so much of a fascination with content around that is because the people that do work on these really has not done a very good job, I think, about you know trumpeting their own success. The deployment, the 
the study and the distribution of these mRNA vaccines is incredible. And it has been incredible for world, for, for societies worldwide. And I think that a lot of, a lot of things have been lost in the details in the uh, kind of the uh, achievements for this, for this technology. And a big reason for that is because scientists have kind of let narratives get hijacked by people that have their own vested interest in what's going on in, you know, promoting their own brand or promoting uh, themselves or their own research. And, a big problem is that as scientists and, and as physicians as well, we're not doing a good enough job about talking to the to the everyday person, talking about these things, talking about what science actually is, because science is hard. Science is very difficult. There are a lot of bumps along the road. There are a lot of things that have happened over the last few years throughout this pandemic that no one really could have predicted. And because we've had a lot of trouble talking about things that have surprised us or things that we didn't expect, that's led to a lot of people to have a lot less faith in us and a lot of less faith in the products that we create. And that's something that we do need to be better about. Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, so kind of one final closing question, um, and it's something I've been thinking a little bit about. Uh, do you think the improvements to, you know, like light-based and ultrasound scanning technologies, do you think they mostly come from signal processing improvements or just improvements to the fundamental device design? And that's a very big question. The answer is both are very, very important. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, emphasis right now on the signal processing side, thinking about using you know uh, better sampling of um, the uh, the signals that you get from these imaging technologies and being able to decipher them and create stronger images from them. But I think that it's very important at the very beginning to have very strong signal for you to be able to deploy these new processing and um, uh, interpreting algorithms on, because if you don't have good signal to begin with, then again, you're not going to get a very good product out, out of it. I think that for mm -hmm. like these portable ultrasound machines, especially that's a very important example because ultrasound requires on relatively low signal to begin with. And you can have a lot of different observers look at an ultrasound read and come away with different opinions. And the reason for that is because ultrasound is a very powerful technology, but it is also a relatively subjective one in the way that you read things and the way that you use that technology. Technology. Being able to improve the output, the hardware, and the ability and the just clarity of what you get out of it is going to be immensely beneficial for all sorts of different applications, no matter how good the uh, AI or machine learning side of this equation gets, it still requires good data being input to be valuable to the user. Awesome. Um, well. It seems that our time is up, Dr. Bhattachapay, but thank you so much for speaking to us, and it's truly a pleasure getting to know more about your research. Absolutely. Thank you both very much for the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing more of this podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. We really hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you in the future.